All right. Thank you so much for having crown. I just echo what Jerry said. It's always a pleasure to have you here. We get to hear from him one more time this morning, so you'll look forward to that. If I haven't met you yet, I'm Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to reflect for a few moments on some scriptures. And if you want to look in a Bible for that, we'll be reading from Romans chapter 5. So uh, you might want to go ahead and find that, and you'll be ready to read with us in just a moment. How are you feeling about this time of year? Feeling okay? As somebody mentioned already, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and Advent is a preparatory kind of time for followers of Christ to to ready and to prepare their heart to rightly celebrate Christ, to rightly celebrate Christmas. And so uh, this will be the first installment and some things that we'll be doing over these next few weeks to help your heart and help your life get ready to engage God in a very special kind of way, in a profound and life-impacting kind of way. So we're glad you're here for this. We're going to be talking over these weeks about gifts. Not so much the gifts you're going to have to get (laughs) or that you hope to receive from others, but we're going to be talking about the gifts that God gives. And because we don't deserve them, they're all grace gifts. Grace has to do with our receiving things that we cannot earn, we don't merit, we don't deserve, but just out of God's goodness, out of His graciousness, He gives. And so that's what we'll be talking about over these next few weeks. Now, when we start talking about gifts, and if you've already got your list going, oh yeah, I've got to do this this afternoon, I'm going to try to go get that, and so on like that. Um, Let me just give you a new standard. When we start talking about lavishness, extravagance, over-the-top kinds of stuff, you don't have to go very far to look at some things that are happening these days in our culture. Uh, Victoria Beckham, for example, has received from her husband a very nice Hermes bag. How many of you would like to have one of those? It's got a few diamonds on it. It's only $129,000. It can be yours for that amount of money. Uh, Nick Cannon got his wife, Mariah Carey, a Rolls Royce Phantom, just $400,000. And that can be yours. Mike Tyson, the former heavyweight champion, got a $2 million bathtub jacuzzi. Now, I have literally scoured the Internet to find out what makes that worth $2 million. I I haven't been able to find it out. All I can find is ridicule. I can't find anybody telling us good stuff about why it's so valuable. And then uh, Paris Hilton couldn't get anybody to give her anything, so she gave this to herself, a $285,000 pink Bentley, a gift to herself. And then... Uh, Suri Cruz, of course, the beloved daughter of Tom Cruise, Katie Holmes, uh, they plan, it's already been announced, to spend for Christmas on their little girl $130,000. That will involve some diamond earrings and some designer dresses and a pony, among other things. And, of course, Beyonce and her husband, Jay-Z, had to lay a ring on her And if you can't tell by looking at that, 18 carats. 18. I I just, you know, I can't even imagine. $5 million ring. So when you think about extravagance, lavishness like that, I don't know about you, but a lot of us tend to think about that in terms of wastefulness. 
there's so many other things that could be done with that amount of resource and money that uh, could be for the common good, that could make a difference in a lot of other lives uh, besides just a little, little self-indulgence. So I don't know about you, but a lot of us kind of struggle with that whole notion of extravagance, lavishness, because we tend to think, many of us, in more thrifty terms, in more responsible terms. But having said all that, we uh, are faced with the reality, whether you lean toward the extravagant side or the thrifty side, this is a pretty stressful time of the year. As a matter of fact, recently a thousand Americans had been surveyed. They were all different income levels. And out of that survey, it was found that 45% prefer to skip Christmas because it's that stressful. This whole gift-giving thing and how, how am I going to make this person happy and how am I going to be able to afford this and all those kinds of issues and questions. 50% of those were stressed because they knew they did not have the necessary finances to do what they were about to do. And so they were about to go farther into debt, making use of credit, those kinds of things. 45% know I don't have that money that's going to cover what I'm going to be trying to do. Now, what you're looking at there is something of what I would call a representation of what God wants to do for you and for me in the most positive terms possible. Some of us have been doing a read-through-the-Bible thing over these last few months, and, and we've just concluded some readings in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, what you have is story after story after story where God is seeking to flood this world and your lives with His grace. A flood that finds every nook and cranny of your life that just permeates all of who you are and all of this world with His grace, with His gifts, with His blessings. That's what He's looking to do in humanity today. That's His plan. That's His agenda. That's what He is about this very moment. That's what He'd like to do for you in this very hour. It's just flood you with some grace gifts. And when we think about it in those terms, we have to say that's pretty extravagant. That's pretty lavish in the most positive terms. Now, Jesus himself illustrated this extravagance of God with uh, perhaps one of the most popular stories in the New Testament. Uh, in Luke chapter 15, we refer to it as the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. But Tim Keller came along not too long ago, and he highlighted some things out of that story that has become very important to many of us, very profound to many of us, where he says, you know, there's not only a prodigal son, but there's a prodigal father. And that father actually represents God in that story. And so you could say there's a prodigal God. So let me unpack a couple of words for you before we get into that, because it is a story about two brothers and a prodigal father. What's prodigal mean? If you know that story, you tend to think the word prodigal means wasteful, squandering, because it's a story that tells about a younger son, two brothers, but the younger son says to his dad one day, I'd like to have my inheritance and I'd like to have it now. Now, when Jesus was telling this story to ancient Near Eastern people, they likely would have never heard a story where a Near Eastern patriarch 
had been so disrespected. Where a younger son basically is saying, I wish you weren't alive anymore because I'd like to have my inheritance right now. Of course, inheritance comes when somebody dies. I just assume you, you already did. Could I have my inheritance now? And because the father loved the son, he gave him his inheritance then. Now, in ancient Near Eastern ways, if you had two sons, your uh, estate would likely be divided in this kind of way. Two-thirds would go to the firstborn or the oldest. One-third would go to the youngest. And so it's likely that, you know, in the mind of the hearer of this story, he's thinking, gosh, he just liquidated assets, gave this boy a third of his estate. And then the story goes on. He goes off into a far land. And he blows it on wild living. Prodigal. Wasteful. He is in this dire predicament where he has lost it all. And he thinks, you know what? The people that work for my dad, they have it far better than what I have right now. I'm going to go back and see if he'll just hire me on as a hand. Because I know I don't deserve to be a son anymore. And so he goes back. And the story takes another incredible turn and twist. Because the story then, Jesus says, as the boy is coming back home, the father, who apparently has been looking for the son every day, anticipating, hoping that the son would return, sees him in the distance, gathers up his robe, and begins to run out to meet and to greet his son. This would be unheard of in ancient Near Eastern times where a patriarch would so humiliate himself as to run for one thing and to go and meet and greet a wayward son. Basically restoring him to sonship in that gesture. But just to make it clear, he then tells a servant, bring my best robe and put that on him. Bring a ring and put it on his finger. Bring shoes, put it on his feet. All these would be indicators that he is being restored to full sonship. That the father was not going to require him to repay any indebtedness in order to assume his rightful place in the family again. And this is why Keller says, this is really a story about a prodigal father. One who... Is using his estate in ways that would seem wasteful. Why would you bestow on this wayward son who blew his inheritance on wild living? Why would you do such extravagant things for him? Now, Rembrandt has captured this, I think, beautifully in uh, a portrait that he did. And in, in, it's one of his most famous ones where he has the son there bowing before the father and the father welcoming the son back into himself. And Rembrandt, who himself had lost the son, a son had died, uh, most art critics think he's kind of captured that uh, angst and pathos in the father, you know, receiving his son back to himself. His son who had been lost to him, his son who had been dead to him, now has come back to him. But just to blow that up a little bit, as you're looking on the right-hand side, you can see the elder brother. Just to make sure you know who we're talking about right there. And the rest of the story is that the elder brother is not happy about this at all. Dad has already liquidated assets, given away a third of the estate. Now, for the son to be brought back in to the family means he's going to be an heir all over again. So whatever the estate is now, it's going to be 
you know, two-thirds to one-third. Again, this is money out of his pocket. And so what you find out is that this father who has two sons has two sons, both of whom are disconnected from him. The oldest son who had always been there, who had always been dutiful, who had always been faithful, who had always worked, who had never done anything wild and crazy and, and, and uh, blown any of his uh, resources, basically is not enjoying the Father, doesn't love the Father, is kind of just waiting until the Father is gone so he gets his share as well. And so you've got two sons, both disconnected from the father, one still in very close proximity, the other who has gone off into far places. And in both instances, the father is just full of grace, full of extravagance toward both of them. When the older son won't come in to the welcome home party, the dad, again, in a rather humiliating way, goes out to the older brother and says, what are you doing out here? You see, in an ancient Near Eastern custom, the older brother would have been the host. He would have been making sure everybody else was enjoying themselves at this welcome home party. The fatted calf had been killed. This was a rare thing for them to have a big spread of meat like that. But rather than be in the midst of it all, kind of a co-host of the whole thing, he's out on the outskirts and won't even have anything to do with it. The father goes out and says, come. We're going to welcome your brother home. And... The older brother gives his sob story. I've been dutiful. I've been faithful. I've been great. I've been good. You've never done these things for me. You've never thrown a party for me. You've never killed a fatted calf for me. Where's my ring? Where's my rope? And Keller points out, you really have an important picture of types of people and how they relate to God. The older brother pretty much represents moral people, kind of good people, maybe religious people, maybe church-going, law-abiding, rule-keeping people. The younger, of course, would be the one who's going to discover himself. He plays it loose and fast and wild and crazy and riotous and all that kind of stuff. But both are disconnected from the father. And the Father's heart is bent toward them in such a way that He extravagantly, He lavishly, He in in ways that uh, bring a humiliation to Himself, seeks to love them, bless them, embrace them, and draw them in. And the whole point in that, friends, was Jesus saying, that Father is your Father God. That's the way He looks at you. Whether you're a toe-the-line, rule-keeping, good, righteous, uh, religious kind of person, but still disconnected from Him. Or whether you're kind of wild and crazy and you're out doing your own thing and you're discovering yourself and you're irreligious and all that, and disconnected from Him. His heart is so bent toward you that He will give gift after gift to woo your heart to Himself. Thus, prodigal. It seems wasteful that God would be that way with people that seem not to care, not to be responsive, but His love compels Him to be that extravagant. Now, there's a number of scriptures that underscore and highlight uh, God in this kind of fashion. 
for example, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. In other words, the very act of incarnation, and that's what we're celebrating at Christmas, God becoming man, Emmanuel, God with us. That emptying of Himself was lavish, was extravagant, was a, a, a giving of Himself in, in a full kind of way. And then we're told in 2 Corinthians 8 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, right? In heaven, in glory, everything at His disposal, He owns and runs and oversees everything. Though He was rich, yet for your sake, He became poor. So that you, by His poverty, might become rich. In other words, everything that's a part of what it is to be God and to be able to know God and have a right relationship with God, He divested Himself of all those things, made Himself poor that kind of way so that you could be rich. Rich in knowing God, experiencing God, doing life with God, having the fullness of the divine dwell in you. What a gift! How crazy extravagant is that? And that brings us to the reading that I wanted us to do. Just And it's a short reading. So if you have your Bible, look at that with me in Romans chapter 5 because it, is, it spells out a whole lot of this and I want you to see the nuance of it. Beginning at verse 6, this is again Paul writing to the church that's in Rome and he tells them, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now that is some of the weightiest, heaviest, densest theology you'll find in the Bible. And I'm going to take about four or five minutes and unpack that for you because this is God's grace gift to you today. And the first thing that I want you to get is that Paul makes it clear God is not only the creator of this world, He's not only the one that owns all that's in this world, He is the judge of this world. He is the one that will uh, determine if this was right or if this was wrong, if life was lived well, if life was lived poorly, etc. And in that ancient... Uh, notion of coming before the judge uh, giving an account of your life when this life is all done and spent Paul says the things that we just read for example he says he loved us talking about God while we were his unlovable enemies see when he says you were weak and ungodly 
That means you were unseemly, you were unkempt, your life was undone, you were a mess. There was nothing attractive, there was nothing winsome, there, there was nothing lovable about you. It wasn't like God said, oh man, look at that Scott. I, I think I love him. He's pretty awesome. Nothing. It was uh, with every single human being. We're so fallen, so busted, so depraved, so far removed from what he had dreamt for our lives. There was nothing that would compel or draw him to us in our appearance. We were very unlovely and unlovable. And not only that, we were his enemies. We were making choices that were rebellious that were like a coup, that were trying to take over his rightful place. We want to call the shots. We want to be Lord. We want to run the show. And so he loved us even while we were unlovable enemies. That's extravagant. He gave himself, incarnation, to die, crucifixion, in our place. Somebody had to take the penalty for sin, for depravity, for bustedness, for the coup, for the rebellion. And he took the punishment that was meant for you and for me upon himself. Substitution. How crazy is that? How over-the-top extravagant is that? And he therefore, through that act, has justified us. Wipe the slate clean. No offense ever on your record. He has saved us, snatched us back from condemnation, so that we are restored as a son or as a daughter, rightful place as a child of God, and reconciled us. No longer enemies, no longer estranged, but near, close, intimate, friendship, sonship, being a daughter family. Now, all of that is what I'm calling true extravagance. The stuff we started with, with all the celebrities and their blowing of the bazillions of dollars and so on, that's just craziness, absurdity. But what we've just seen in the life of God in His expressing Himself to us in Christ is true extravagance. So, for example, when we talk about that, it's like off-the-chart, ridiculous, undeserved generosity to the extent that it just almost seems wasteful because it's not even fully appreciated. One of the reasons it's not fully appreciated because we're so caught up with self, we sometimes don't even begin to see what he's up to and what he's doing. But it's also unappreciated because we just can't grasp the magnitude of it. And it seems wasteful because it's not of great benefit to him, the giver. Now, if we get it and if we receive the gift, it's of great benefit to us, but it's not a great benefit to him. And if people don't receive the gift, it's not of great benefit to them. And so in that sense, it would seem to be Wasteful, prodigal, extravagant. You begin to see what we're talking about today. How does one respond to God's extravagance? 
I mean, it's so over the top. It's just almost beyond our comprehension that He would be so loving, so merciful, so full of grace that He'd want to flood us with His grace in these kinds of ways. And one of the ways that you respond, if you get it at all, is that you accept God's gifts. The gifts of justification, the gifts of salvation, the gifts of reconciliation. So the question before you today is, will you? You go, well, you know what? I still have a lot of questions. I still don't know about this and that and the other. That's fine. Life and the journey of life can be about asking and getting answers to questions. But the first and the primary question is, is there a Creator God who's seen over all of this world and all of this universe reaching out to you? That's question number one. And if He's reaching out to you, will you respond to that? And then, you know, along the way, get answers to other questions. And if you have responded to that, and Christ lives in you, and this transforming thing is happening in you, would you extravagantly pour out your life for others? And, and friends, we're not talking about, you know, something that you can wrap up and put a bow on. We're talking about how you would care, how you have compassion, how your heart beats in light of what's going on in the lives of some others. That however God's blessed you, you'd be willing to pass that on and to bless others. Now also in your program today is another insert. There's, all, there's a whole list of little ideas about how you can be a part of God's extravagant touch to other people. And, and that's just a sample of ideas. There's so many ways almost every day that God invites us into His adventure of the flood of grace, of blessing people, of touching their lives, of being a, a part of His arms in, the, in His embrace uh, uh, around them. And so, friends, if you get that, and if you've uh, received that and accepted that, then will you be a part of that? I want to pray for you. And I want to pray that God touch you at a deep place right now. Will you bow with me? And just in the stillness of a moment, just kind of zeroing your focus on God. You can whisper this to Him. God, is, is what I've been hearing true? I mean, do you really... Love us in that extent, with that extravagance. You really want relationship with my life? God, I pray that you'd answer those questions. I pray that in just that kind of quiet whisper that you so often do, You bring that reality home to our heart and to our thoughts. And I pray for my friend today that has been disconnected for whatever reasons. 
to be connected right now. To open his or her heart to you. Thank you for saving grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.